Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000049 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. Start off, as always, by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the uh, land from which I am broadcasting this evening. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. emerging. And um, I wish them all the best during this difficult time. But um, as anyone in the Aboriginal community knows, that uh, as a people... We've been through worse. Uh, well, you know, observations. Uh, I've, I've come out of self-isolation and uh, on my way in, I've noticed that, again that the vast majority of people are continuing to do the right thing. And by the briefings we are getting from prime ministers, premiers, chief medical officers, chief health officers, seems that there are early signs that the, the curve is flattening. But we'll know for... We'll know more detail next week once the um, the early data early data that correlates with stage three restrictions, which we're all abiding by at the moment, um, show up as new data points on the curve. Now, of course, this is promising news. It's good news for all of us, but particularly for one of the most vulnerable sections of the community, my mob, the Aboriginal community. And of course, that's largely what we'll be covering for the foreseeable future on this show. The show is not going anywhere. We'll get it out to you one way or the other. And to do that, of course, we'll need your support. And it's April Amnesty, but more on that in a moment. So on tonight's show, I'll be speaking with Professor Talia Anthony, who penned a piece in The Guardian last week, which spoke to the ticking time bomb that is COVID-19 in our prison system. Now, Aboriginal people, as you probably know by now, if you're a regular listener to the show, make up 30% of the overall prison population. And it would be just as much as a disaster if it took hold across the system as it would be if it uh, took hold in some of our communities. Because they're locked up for various reasons. Um, Our mothers, fathers, grandmothers, all locked up uh, at Her Majesty's service. So we'll speak to Talia about what it might look like to um, uh, what it might look like if the virus actually takes hold in our systems and what can be done to minimise the risk of that. And in the second half of the show, you might have, mentioned, uh, might have remembered that uh, I think it was the last week, I talked about food security in remote uh, communities. And I'll be um, having a yarn in the second half of the show with John Rodriguez. John is the CEO of Lindel, Lidl, an organisation that owns and administrates several businesses in and around Fitzroy Crossing, including one of the IGAs up there. So we'll talk about how the panic buying in the city actually impacts on the food security in remote Aboriginal communities. So we're going to continue to cover these issues week in and week out as long as this thing lasts. And I look forward to one day again speaking to some artists and musicians and filmmakers about what they've got coming up in the uh, near or not too distant future. But until then, we're going to cover these issues because these issues don't get much of a hearing anywhere else. Now, as you know, um, April Anesty is on, and <laughs> let's be honest, it's a, bit, it's a bit orcs this year, given the collapse of the global economy and all, and uh, you know, capitalism 
as we uh, as we know it. Uh, it's impacting on everyone, of course, and Triple R is no different. The collapse of events, gigs, small businesses has sent the station's revenue from advertising through the floor. And for an organisation that runs on a shoestring budget anyway, well, that's uh, that's a problem. So that's why it's essential if um, we can have your support, but we only ask for your support if you can provide it. We understand if it's a choice between supporting this station and putting food on the table, then there is no choice, is there, really? But if you can support, and if you are gaining comfort from the wonderful broadcasting by our wonderful broadcasters here on 102.7, then we'd very much appreciate your help. The easiest way to subscribe, of course, is via the website, rr.org.au, or to call 9388-1027 between 10 and 6 on weekdays. We remain your station in isolation. And when I get this show out to you week in, week out, um, whether I'm here or elsewhere, I will um, endeavour to bring you the, the latest and not so greatest in the way this thing's impacting Aboriginal people. This is the mission on Triple R 102.7. Triple R. Now, while we as a community and as a nation are seemingly flattening the curve through a series of measures, very little is being spoken about in terms of what's happening with prison populations if COVID-19 takes hold in some of our country's prison facilities. Last week, a uh, really interesting article appeared in The Guardian that uh, went right to the heart of this potentially explosive issue, and it was penned by Talia Anthony. Talia is Professor of the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology in Sydney. She's a non-Aboriginal academic and activist. She's a leading researcher in systemic racism, colonial legacies in the criminal justice system, and she's on the line now to speak to us now. Talia, welcome back to Triple R. Good to talk with you again, Daniel. Now, there's a lot of issues on our political leaders' plates at the moment, but why is this issue in particular seemingly so taboo? Uh, Well... I feel like prisons are always taboo. There's a sense that you just lock them away. They're these really bad people who don't deserve to be in society and it's a complete misrepresentation. But, you know, it is popular politics and um, I think that, you know, within this pandemic it's no different. You know, the the interests of the mainstream um, prevail and I think it's really concerning with prisons because... Um, unfortunately, if there's an outbreak there, it's not only devastating for prisoners, but there's a real flow-on to the community as well. Yeah, there is. Um, like like I, um, I mentioned at the um, start of the show, you know, roughly 30% of the prison population in, in Australia is made up by um, Aboriginal people. Um, and so, and a lot of them are mothers and fathers and aunties and uncles and grandmothers and grandfathers. Um, so any any sort of explosion in COVID nineteen, given the comorbidity that um, prison populations seem to have a higher rate of in the first instance, would uh, would just wreak havoc. Ah, uh, absolutely, and I mean we can see with other infections in prisons like TB, the rate of transmission is about a hundred times that of the general population, and then we look at things like SARS and. Aboriginal people were so much more susceptible to that disease in Australia than other populations. So I think when you put the two of those together, you know, it's really just a 
a nightmare watching this um, pandemic unfold and having prisons neglected. Is there is there any jurisdiction that's actually being proactive about, you know, what can be done to minimise the impact of this? Yeah, look, we did have a, um, I thought, a really good win for the campaign for the rights of people in prison during this time. Um, the New South Wales government passed laws a couple of weeks ago that gave the corrections commissioner the power to release various classes of prisoners. So they were prisoners who are to be released within the next 12 months anyway. Um, they're people who are vulnerable um, and people who um, don't fit within a, I guess, serious offender class. So, um, it, you know, I guess more low-lying offenders. So there, there are the powers now. And even though it does exclude, you know, people who are serious offenders, for example, we know that um, a huge proportion of people in prison are there for minor offences. So if this legislation is, you know, properly implemented, then we should see a significant number of people are released. The problem, however, so far is that there haven't been measures to implement and I fear that they're waiting for an outbreak before that happens. Yeah, so, you know, perhaps a little bit of cynical politics behind it all, do you think? Yeah, look, I, it's, I mean, I thought I was heartened. You know, we don't often talk about releasing prisoners. We don't often talk about these people as human beings who have real health issues. Um, so I was heartened that, you know, there was a bit of leadership, but now it seems that because the issue isn't so urgent, um, they've just taken their foot off the pedal and it's, it's kind of like you know, watch and see. And that's not the right approach because if we take that line, it means that there's going to be an outbreak and it will just be a matter of having to clean up the mess, whereas now we have an opportunity to prevent people, you know, losing their lives. People in the US and the UK, um, several people in the last week have lost their lives with very little hospital um treatment or medical intervention until the very last minute and they died of COVID-19. So we can't let that happen. And, and you know, the commissioners in prisons need to step up and see this as a really necessary preventative measure. In the article, you, you have, you've had a bit of a look at what's happened in, in overseas prisons, um, particularly in um, Italy and uh, in, in Colombia. Can you, can you describe what's happened over there? Yeah, well, people in prisons over there, as everywhere, are very afraid. They're afraid that they're being locked up and made to serve a death sentence because, you know, this, this virus is, is very um, dangerous, but especially, as you mentioned, for people with, you know, certain comorbidities, um, and many of those people are in our prisons. So um, people are very frightened, and in... Um, Italy and Colombia, there have been huge uprisings in prisons and as a result, tragically, during those uprisings, um, people have lost their lives. Um, there have been, um, you know, over 30 people who've lost their lives. So it's um, a really, I think, unsettling experience for the world to go through this pandemic. But when you're locked up, you can't social distance, you can't get the proper amount, 
you know, necessary sanitation and you often don't expect to receive the health care of other, other people in the community. I, imagine how terrifying mm. that would be when... I, I mean, I find it quite comical when people are locked in hotels, being quarantined and say it's like prison... They've got no idea. Um, well, you think you think you think that's hard. People people aren't allowed to go and play golf. I mean, yeah, it's tough, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I I mean I just I really fear for you know I feel fear for the people in prison, but I also you know worry about their their kids and their families who are also um, you know worried about losing loved ones unnecessarily. So the measures like that are being proposed, and there's a building campaign for release of prisoners in Australia and around the world because we're seeing thousands and thousands being released in Europe and, and the Middle East and, and now Africa. Um, the, the whole campaign is premised on the fact that if we can stop people being infected in prisons, that's actually really good for the community because people you know, a release from prisons into the community. Workers come and go from prisons. So if there's an outbreak in a prison, there's real ramifications for all of us. Yeah, and in addition to that, we don't, you know, want, you know, the precious resources we we have to go to, you know, a really intense situation in a prison when, when it can be prevented if, if, if governments and jurisdictions take the appropriate pro- proactive measures. Yeah, absolutely, because the, once there is an outbreak and, you know, high health needs within prisons, then um, it's going to be, you know, a huge imposition on the health system. You know, the people will have to be hospitalised and cared for. Why not just let them into the community so we can prevent the infections happening in the first place. It's, it's really nonsensical in, in light of what we've seen, and this has been a huge story um, with the cruise ships. Um, you know, in, in prisons, even more contained and confined than cruise ships. So we know what's going to happen if we maintain prisons at their current overcrowded levels where people have to live together in really close quarters. Now, New South Wales does have that emergency prisoner release legislation. Um, mm. What, if anything, are other jurisdictions in Australia doing? Look, there are some commissioners, for example, in the Northern Territory who are using their discretionary powers to release people. So um, the commissioners releasing up to 60 people there. Um, but otherwise, the emphasis has really been on trying to get people bail. So ostensibly we should have a right to bail. You know, everyone's innocent um, before proven otherwise. But really increasing numbers, especially in Victoria, um, are going into remand without even having been found guilty. So the emphasis now is really on bailing as many people as possible and lawyers have been putting a lot of work into that and courts have been quite receptive. They don't want to send people into these COVID-19 hotspots that are prisons. So I think um, I think there's a lot of work being done around people not going in in the first place, but it's still not enough to take off the, you know, pressure points in prisons. Like we're seeing numbers go down in prisons by the hundreds, but the reality is we have 45,000 people in Australian prisons. We need to do a lot more work if we're going to stop that, you know, high-level... Um, intense containment of people. 
And and you you state in the article that our prisons are actually beyond one hundred percent capacity. A lot of people will be very yeah. um, surprised by that. Yeah, people are living in you know cells with um, several other people, and when there are requests to to have a cell for themselves because they want to isolate, you know, if they're not feeling well. Um, those requests, it seems, have been refused, at least the ones I'm hearing about in New South Wales and Victoria. So um, it seems that, they're, you know, if if they feared that there were people who um, needed to be isolated because they were they were unwell, there just isn't the room to do it. Um, and, and prisons for a long time have been overcrowded. That's why we're continually, you know, putting billions of dollars into building more prisons, but it then feeds this system where more people are being sent to prison. So we've known this for a long time. The problem now is that when you have a crisis situation where you need to separate people, the the um, urgency is apparent. But really, I feel like COVID-19, if, if nothing else, should be an opportunity to reassess our structures and not assume that any normality in terms of overcrowding, is feasible or sustainable. Because if it's not the coronavirus, the reality is it will be something else like hepatitis C mm. or TB or whatever. We can't just think generally prisons are good, you know, um, and, and safe conditions. They're, they provide really unhealthy conditions for most people. It is 24 past seven. I'm speaking with Professor Talia Anthony, who was an associate professor last time I spoke to her. So, um... Congratulations on that, Talia. Um, yeah, I guess um, it hasn't done much harm. <laughs> Trying to be an advocate, often it is harmful, but sometimes it's okay. No, you're doing a great job. Um, what um, Are you optimistic that, that, that these changes are actually going to be um, put in place and that there's going to be some sensible measured policy and, and administration of this, or do you remain sceptical? Um. I think I think there will be changes uh, because I, I I think at the end of the day policymakers will come to terms and this is already being recommended by the World Health Organization mm. that if we don't make prisons safer by freeing them up then it will be a problem for the community so I think that that policymakers will eventually um, cotton on to this. Um, not because necessarily they're, they're concerned with the health of prisoners. It might be for some of them, and I, and I hope it is. But mainly they're concerned about the implications for the community. Um, my, so I'm optimistic they will um, get to that point. My concern is they won't get there soon enough, mm. and um, people will get sick and lives may be lost in the process. So the the hope is to keep the pressure on, and, you know, I've just sent an you know, email to attorney generals and corrections ministers across the country because we've released tonight an open letter of 400 um, signatories in criminal law across the country calling for change. Um, so the hope is to keep that pressure on so it doesn't, you know, any change doesn't come too, too late. Because I, I wake up often, you know, reading stories about deaths in custody overseas and wonder if it's just a matter of time. And so we just you know, the the optimism's there, but if it's not, if the timing's not right, it's, I feel like it might be in vain. Is there anywhere that people can go to um, to have a read of that letter? Yeah, and actually, um, and I know not everyone has Facebook, but we've found this is often the best way to communicate with families. But 
Um, I'd really invite your listeners to get onto a new Facebook group that I've started called COVID-19 Prison Watch. And what we're doing is uploading information, including that letter, um, and other petitions um, that groups such as Aboriginal Legal Service have put out, um, also calling for the release of prisoners. And, and it covers, the page covers developments internationally and in Australia about infections in prisons, um, about the release policies, about any uprisings in prison. So we're just trying to have a resource hub and a hub for activists and families to, you know, to share experiences and to help one another. Okay, so the page is COVID-19 Prison Watch on Facebook. Go in there and uh, take a geese if you're, yeah, um, if you're interested in this. Post. Yeah, before I let you go, um, how are you and yours holding up during this whole pandemic global meltdown scenario? Um, yeah, look, I find it up and down. I actually physically live next to a hospital and um, I, I find sometimes I'm waking up to the sound of sirens. Mm. Um, but I, I, I feel like it's a, I, I guess a pendulum swinging between fear for loved ones and, you know, friends and obviously people in custody. Um, and then, you know, trying to be optimistic that, you know, hopefully people are being really careful, people aren't being selfish and are just respecting the common good and, you know, we'll get through. What about you, Daniel? Um, well, you know, I enjoy not shaving. Um, I, uh, you know, in, enjoy like washing my hands and I enjoy sort of like basic sort of sanitary measures that um, I can take. Um, uh, it's always good being clean. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. No, we've learned that now. I think we've all been taught a really good lesson. Wash your, the wash your hands. Has. Yeah. Well, Talia, thank you so much for your time. Uh, take care of each other. Um, you're been broadcasting to the Triple R audience, which is a very sensible audience that does take all the, the measures required to keep the curve uh, flat. So um, look after yourself and thank you again for your time on Triple R. You too. You take care, Daniel. So good to speak with you. Cheers. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Okay, so on to our, um, on to our second guest here. Um, panic buying in capital city supermarkets has caused shortages in some of the nation's most remote and vulnerable communities where thousands of Aboriginal Australians have been told to stay put to minimise the risk of catching the dreaded COVID-19. And some of the nation's most remote communities are being impacted. One such community is in and around the town of Fitzroy Crossing in the Kimberley region of Western Australia, about 400 kilometres east of Broome and about 300 kilometres west of Halls Creek. It's remote. Uh, John Rodriguez is the CEO of Lidl, operates, which operates five businesses in uh, Fitzroy Crossing and holds other assets, including rental properties. Lidl um, is a trustee of the Fitzroy Cross, Crossing Trust, which is owned and directed by six, six beneficiaries, each one an Aboriginal community and organisation. Now, Lidl owns the Turunda IGA supermarket, and so John has seen firsthand the impacts of um, how basic supplies and food security are being impacted up that way, and he joins us on the line now. John, welcome to AAA. Thank you for your time. No problems, thank you. Thank you for having me. No sweat. 
First of all, um, how are you coping with this whole COVID nineteen thing? You and your family, you you you're holding up okay? Yes, uh, we're holding up uh, really well at the moment. There's no uh, issues in Fitzroy um, currently, so uh, we're all um, all taking precautions. Fantastic, good to hear. Um, explain to us how a supermarket like the 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 Tarunda IGA sources stock in the first place to serve the community up there. We go through obviously our warehousing uh, WA uh, Metcash uh, IGA, um, and that's how we source most of our um, product. And we have other other companies that we source um, minimum stuff from, but most of our dry goods um, comes from um, the warehouse. Now, food, food security um, and supplies are, are, are always an issue in, in remote communities at the best of times. How has the, the binge buying in, in cities actually um, affected supply up there? Well, it started off, obviously, I mean, it started in the cities. I used to watch the uh, on the news how people panic buying and fighting over toilet paper and all that sort of stuff. Like, we all watched that. Mm. And nothing was happening in Fitzroy. Fitzroy was all good. I had all the stock I wanted. People were happy just to do their normal shopping. And it wasn't until about the 20th of March when uh, government started talking about shutting down communities or isolating and, and all that sort of stuff. And then on the 20th of March, it started up here. People started to, um, started to panic. And um, so I found it hard to try and get stock uh, out of the warehouse. They would give me minimum or none. Um, and until, until last week as well, um, we still weren't getting as much stock as we wanted. Like we, the order that we used to do... We were going and getting 38% of the order, which was not wow. good enough for us. So we've had a couple of meetings and um, with people trying to get stock. So it's, it's moved up to 41%, still not good enough because the essentials are under these conditions. We need to keep clean. The houses need to keep clean. People need to keep clean. And obviously the essentials like your soaps, um, um. your detergents, you know, um, you know, all that, um, all that sort of stuff is, is still is still not available. So, you know, a potential close down, lockdown was poorly communicated in, in the first place and that caused a, a degree of panic, as it did everywhere else up there. Absolutely, yep. And But on top of that, there have actually been clamps put on what you can actually source as a result. Yes, yes. That's yes. insane. Yeah, so, I mean... I, I mean, the customers come in and they want to buy the stuff. They yeah. want to buy the stuff. They want to keep the houses clean. They want to keep themselves clean, the kids and all that sort of stuff. And they come in and just can't find what they want. Whether, sometimes I get, I get two orders a week. I'm trying to get onto three now, but two orders a week to get the stuff up here. It's 2,500 kilometres from Perth. Um, so it does take two and a half days to get here, yeah. roughly. And um, when the stock gets here, it just goes off the shelf. As soon as we're putting it up, the customers know the trucks are, the trucks are here. And they're just coming in and grabbing the stuff as well. So I just don't have um, um, the stock coming in that I've required for the time being. So are you are you um, optimistic that this this can be, resol- be resolved like as soon as possible, or are there still roadblocks in place? Look, um, we are having great communications with our warehouse. We've had uh, uh, two meetings. They are sourcing a lot of stuff for us now that that obviously obviously been around for the, as long as I have. I know the dietary requirements of most of our people here. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I'm trying to do is trying to get enough stock so I can keep the people in their communities, not isolated, but keep them out there for a longer period than coming into the supermarket on a daily basis just to minimise the risk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a very delicate and um, balanced situation that you need to, to, to 
manoeuvre through. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you want people coming in and, and getting the appropriate products to to you know clean their houses and, and maintain good hygiene standards. But at yes. the same time, yes. you don't want people having to come in every day to check to see whether whether the stock has turned up. And that's our problem because now the, I believe I've, I've just got an email as well through the, um, the our system that uh, we have to put numbers in place of how many people are going to be in stores. Right, yep. Um, so that's going to come into place this week sometime. So I've just got the email. I've, been, I've just read the uh, headline. But we have to put all that in place, which is, is going to be hard for these people to understand because they're going to travel, say, 100, 100 kilometres away from Fitzroy when they're communities mm. and coming in and finding out they've got to wait another half an hour, an hour to get in. Um, and so it's going to be a bit of a problem. You know, so but we'll uh, we'll work through it like everything uh, like we're doing. Nobody knows what to do at this time, so we're all learning. Yep, and we're working doing the best we can at the moment for the for the communities. So so describe, um, you know, for people who don't know Fitzroy Crossing and some of the communities up there. Describe some of the communities up there. Like, um, who have you got around you? Okay, well, we we um, well Fitzroy alone has got about eleven to twelve hundred people living in town. Yep. And then we have about 40, 40 out communities on the outskirts of Fitzroy. So those communities can have a minimum, say, of about um, 15 to 20 people, up to 300 people in them. But when they come in, we sort of have, um, we sort of have a lot of, you know, three, three and a half, four thousand people. Um, it's a lot. Of, it's a big number to cater for, and yeah. obviously with the uh, Kimberley being closed off uh, from Hall Street to here, vice versa to Broome. Uh, people don't travel as much to go and do their shopping or get whatever they need. They, they focus on on the supermarket here at the moment. That's what my problem is, that I'm getting a lot of people now coming in on a daily basis uh, because they can't travel between the regions now, you know? Yeah. Do you... I mean, it's a, you know, we shudder at the thought, but, you know, can you, you know, even begin to imagine what sort of impact COVID-19 would happen if it hit some of these communities? It would be massive. I can tell you that... Obviously, I know a lot of people in town that have um, uh, health issues. Yep. Um, not because um, other people tell them, but, but they're talking to different people. I know what they have. There are a lot of um, a lot of issues that they have, and uh, I think we've got this, the news that that's on hand that we all read and know about. And as much as we get information from health department and government, uh, is will have a massive effect in a community like this. Yeah. Massive. Yeah. I can't. I can't begin to imagine. Nah. You know. I could barely you know, bear the thought of even beginning to think about it, but it has to be thought about. So people are yeah, wanting... We just need, we just, yeah, we, sorry, we just need yeah. to start uh, source the stuff that people need to minimise the risk of them catching them on, on surfaces and and, uh, and stuff. That's why I'm trying to get as hard as I can to get this uh, clean stuff and products up here so they can stay in the communities. So the, the, the panic buying in, in places like Melbourne seems to have... Um, died down, but it, it seems that you've got a you know potentially a, a, a two or three week lag you know behind that now, and yes. so yes. You've, um, do you think putting in place the the, the stringent and, and 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 you know rightfully stringent uh, social distancing measures? Do you think that's going to add to any sense of unease up there, or or are, are people getting the message? Um, look, we have the um, crosses on the floor, you know, the one yep. and a half metres. We have the washing up. We have um, um, stuff at the front of the shop to wipe their trolleys. And, you know, we've put all the measurement, measures in place. Uh, not everybody's getting it. You know, like we have a lot of old people coming into the store and the government's saying if you're over the age of 60 or 50 or 70, stay home. 
Yep. And but that by themselves, no one's helping their, those people out. But they need food, so they they force themselves to come to the supermarket and buy stuff. The kids are definitely not getting it. Um, um, I keep talking to parents about you know there's the new rules, minimise the risk. Not only for, you know, I'm not saying that you guys have it, just minimise minimise the risk because we all know that kids sort of run around the supermarket and they want the lollies and they touch this and touch that, but just to minimise that risk as well. I keep talking to parents, but two days later they're back in and they've got the kids and I keep talking to them. So I think the ruling of uh, maybe maybe bringing X amount of people into the store at any one time is going to be uh, good news for it. Uh, but not might not be uh, what they what they want. Uh, not everybody's. A lot of people are getting it. Don't get me wrong. A lot yeah. of people are getting it. And they even even telling people when they're standing in the, on the till to go on the till, um, keep your distance. And that, that's come from local indigenous people. And that's fantastic. But a lot of them are still not getting it. But we're getting there. It is 928. You're listening to Triple R 102.7 FM. You're listening to a show called The Mission. I'm speaking with John Rodriguez, who is the CEO of Lidl, which um, operates businesses in Fitzroy Crossing, but in particular a business we're talking about, and that's the uh, Turunda IGA, which is trying its best to serve its um, community. Do you think that um, apart from you know the supply issues around, around the IGA, John, are you um, confident that the authorities themselves are doing enough to protect some of those remote Aboriginal communities up there? From what I've gathered, from what I've gathered and what I've heard is um, they are, but I can't see the results on the ground at this stage. Right. Um, I've been told that the people are going out and talking to people, but why isn't that getting transferred onto ground level? Um, that's my concern. So these people are working tireless, going out and talking to members of the community, but not seeing the results currently. You know, so that's a bit of a concern for me. So before before I let you go, what what is the absolute imperative thing that needs needs to happen for 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 you to to get the supplies you need to get to um, and serve your communities? Look, it's it, it's hard. I mean, obviously, if I, if I had a magic wand, it would be fantastic. I understand the warehouse is not getting the products that I require from from the, um, uh, the warehouse, from their warehouses, that they're factories. Yep. Factories are making these products are not getting enough enough product as well to make the stuff. So we're, it's, in a, it's a catch-22 situation where the customer comes in the shop, they can't find the stock. I go and order my stock from the, the warehouse and they haven't got it. And then those people go and get their stuff where they get it from. And it's just going to like a big circle going round and round until they get the stock in to, um, to, have, to have the stuff. That's why I've had those meetings with um, the general managers and um, of, um, of WA to see if they can help us out just for the community's sake. Just a one-off, get me what, 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 what I need to help the community stay out for an, an, a week or two weeks, enough food out there for, for them just to stay out so they don't come in on a daily basis. And what message do you have for people that are thinking or are living in <clears throat> a place like Melbourne are thinking of buying products that... Um, they don't need immediately, and they're thinking of stockpiling them. What's your message to them? Well, there's no need. There's no need for stockpiling because I'm finding that here as well. The people that are in need of, st- of food currently can't get it because a lot of people in Fitzroy as well have stockpiled. Don't take from don't take from others what you don't need currently. Take what you need and buy what you need, and then just let, is there enough food like we all know. There's enough food in Australia for all of us. Yep.
three times over. It's just we've just got to be sensible. Yes. Yep. Thank you so much for your John. I, I wish you all the best. Um, take care of yourself. Thank you for the, for the work that you do. And um, yep. I'll, I'll stay in touch with you on this issue. It's really important and um, it's something right. that us city folk need to be aware of. So thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks, Daniel. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.